Hello and welcome to another conversation in anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Each episode we sit down with our fellow anthropologists to talk about their work, the state of the discipline and what anthropology has to tell us about the 21st century. Conversations in Anthropology is produced by Matt Barlow, Cami O'Dally, Maithili Maher, Timothy Neal and myself, David Border-Giles. The podcast is produced in association with the American Anthropological Association and with the support of the Australian Anthropological Society. In this episode, Tim sits down with Associate Professor Monica Minigal to chat to Dr. Will Smith, an environmental anthropologist and research fellow at Deakin University. Will's book, Mountains of Blame, Climate and Culpability in the Philippine Uplands, recently published with the University of Washington Press, explores the political ecologies of forests in relation to the experiences and effects of climate change on the island of Palawan in the Philippines. This conversation tackles some thorny questions around indigenous understandings of changing climates, the refusal by communities to be categorized by governments as vulnerable victims or resilient saviors, and more than human relations marked by fear and violence rather than reciprocity, flourishing, or love. As Will states, The forests are full of malevolent spirits, and he has been bitten by a lot of stuff in the forests of Palawan. So what do insights like this contribute to conversations about conservation and climate change policy in Southeast Asia? Listen on to this great conversation between Will Smith, Monica Minigal, and our very own Tim Neal to find out. Okay, Will, as per our tradition... We'd like you to tell us a little of your academic life story. How did you come to study anthropology and be an anthropologist? That's a good question. Um, You know, I wish, Monica, that I had a very sophisticated answer to this question. I wish that Edward Tyler, you know, had come to me in a dream one night and bestowed this vocation upon me. But I don't really think that it went like that. And I think it's, uh, the reality is quite lowbrow, really. You know, growing up in, in the 1990s, we lived in, in Cairns in far north Queensland. And my father, he was an ethnobotanist at that time, and he did a lot of work with Aboriginal communities across Cape York. This is a line of work that engenders you to a lot of complaining. You complain about the neo-colonial nature of Australian institutions, about racism in Australia, and you complain about these people who go to Aboriginal communities. They, they jet in for one or two days. They ask a few questions and then they jet out again. And their pockets are full of, are full of money from this consulting work that they've done. And it turns out that these people are anthropologists. And when I heard this you know, as a child, and I was still working out what I wanted to be, you know, this was kind of an appealing lifestyle for me, right? You can, you can travel and you can ask people questions and find out about their lives and, and, and get paid to do that. And of course, you know, later on, I would come to realize that anthropology isn't quite the easy money spinner that he may have made it out to be. And that work has a lot of problematic aspects to it. But I think when I did kind of go from that point to learning more about what anthropology was, I was already primed to, to, to find that quite interesting. And I think for me, what kind of really sparked an interest in doing that kind of work was some of the seminal work of, of popular culture in the 1990s, actually. Because, you know, anthropology, we don't really have an Indiana Jones-type figure to generate this interest in the work, right? There's no kind of person 
this charismatic figure that you know make people think that they want to be anthropologists. And one thing that was really influential on me was the TV show Seinfeld. So you might have heard of this show, Seinfeld. It's well known. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty well known. And so in its own articulation, it was a show about the excruciating daily minutiae of the lives of these four really terrible people. And so it branded itself as this this show about nothing, but it was actually a show about everything. You know, like every week they would unveil the hidden social codes and norms that governed our behavior. And that was amazing to me as a young person. It was unlike anything that was on television at that time. So when I, I went and, and I looked up what an anthropologist was, and I found out that I could do that as a profession, that was really exciting for me. Um, and I think, you know, this ultimately led to doing my undergraduate degree at the University of Queensland, and I did a whole bunch of different stuff. But what really stuck was anthropology being my major. I kind of followed through all this and, and did my PhD and it ended up working uh, on Palinomans in the Philippines. This is uh, very lazy research on my part, but I wanted to see what came up when I googled Palawan. And as expected, the first result indicates that Palawan is, quote, uh, a slice of heaven, according to TripAdvisor. That's right at the top. It also comes up with, you know, frequently asked questions about Palawan, and one of them is, is Palawan safe? Which is a question that also kind of indexes a certain uh, version of uh, a foreign tourist economy. Um, the, the answer of the search engine is that uh, Palawan is comparatively very safe, oh, good to know. apparently. So was, tell us a little bit about Palawan and, and I guess how people uh, people come to know it as a, as a uh, tourist destination. How, how and... I guess, additionally, how is that tourist economy kind of encountered by uh, your interlocutors? So Palawan is a really special place within the Philippines. And as you kind of identified, it's a really significant tourist destination. And I guess maybe for some context here, um, this is really driven by the domestic tourist economy. Not a lot of international tourists go there. I mean, some do, but it's you know relatively minor. So to contextualize that, pre-pandemic, more international tourists visited Bali every year, just the one island in Indonesia, than you know, all international tourists visited the Philippines. So it's a relatively minor component of this kind of tourist economy. It's really driven by the desires of domestic Filipino tourists, this middle class kind of, of, of cohort that desire this kind of tourist experience. And I'm really not the expert on, on tourism on Palawan. I will refer people to the work of my spouse colleague, Dr. Sarah Webb. She writes some great stuff on uh, ecotourism and tourism in Palawan. But what's significant about this kind of tourist economy is that it's driven by this, this desire to have an experience with nature and this Philippine experience of nature. And for a range of historical reasons, Palawan is a relatively forested area of the Philippines. It has high forest cover. It has this, these, nat these natural wonders. It has this unique biogeography that makes it distinct from anywhere else in the Philippines. And so a huge number of tourists go there every year to have this kind of Filipino nature experience as part of the, the national patrimony. And it's an economy that's really unevenly distributed. And where I did a lot of my field work, in, in the south of the island, there, there was relatively little of this kind of tourist infrastructure. And so it's a different place in, in the south, right? 
The beaches quite, aren't quite as nice. They're much rockier. The landscape is very beautiful. It's very forested, but there's lots of people living there. There's lots of indigenous people living in these upland areas. And they don't necessarily dress or act in the ways that these tourists might expect. Um, it's also less safe. So, you, you know, there's been a, a series of high-profile kidnappings from Palawan. So it's, it's not quite as, as, as safe as other parts of, of Palawan. Um, but for the people that I worked with, the indigenous community that I did a lot of my ethnographic uh, field work with, it means that, well, it means two things. On the one hand, they don't really access any of the benefits of a tourist economy, right? They don't tapped into handicraft net networks in a really substantial way. Tourists don't go there and spend a lot of money in ways that benefit them. But on the flip side of that, they're still bound by the expectations of tourists and, and you know, state agencies in the Philippines and, and popular opinion that they should be guardians of this, you know, last frontier of nature for the nation. So it's this double kind of... of, of Forests are, are, are clearly a big part of this story. Uh, your book, Mountains of Blame, which was based on your PhD research, includes a, a great depth of ethnographic and historical and, and geographical research. Now, a lot of the historical research actually has to do with the rises and falls of forestry in Palawan and the Philippines. So it's the trees are not just there to look at by tourists. They are a big part of the, the history of this place. Can you sketch out that history of forestry and, and why it's so important for, for understanding Palawan today? Sure. So I think that you know the decline of tropical forests in the Philippines more generally is it's one of the great environmental disasters of the 20th century. It's a disaster whose scope and scale and the implications of it aren't really well understood outside of the Philippines. So around about the turn of the 20th century, the Philippines is going through this process of transition. You know, the, the Spanish have been defeated. The American colonial administration is moving in. And, you know, from what we know from the various various kinds of sources is that it's mostly covered in these really sweeping expanses of, of forests of various kinds. And American colonial officials who took over from the Spanish, they provide these really florid descriptions of forest stretching from, you know, the tops of mountains all the way to the ocean. And, you know, this made them really excited for a whole range of different reasons. But, you know, if you go to the Philippines today... Um, which you know, I encourage people to do uh, as, as a, you know, a, a kind of tourist experience, it's really quite a dramatically different landscape. The mountains are, you know, people describe the mountains as being cowboys, they're bold, you know. And outside of a few different areas, some very remote and, and mountainous kinds of regions like Palawan, but also a few other places, there's very, very little forests left. Um, and it's, you know, genuinely shocking to see this, the scale of this kind of environmental transformation. And it's a change that, you know, understandably prompts a lot of questions for people. What happened here? Who is to blame? And so I think this is a question that should be interesting for anthropologists, right? Because the discipline has always been interested in, you know, the social organization of blame um, and the implications of that blame. Um, and we can think of these really classical functionalist accounts of witchcraft and, and sorcery and, and the way that that fits into the social dynamics of small-scale societies. But, of course, there's witchcraft in, in the environmental bureaucracy of the Philippines, right? 
accusations of blame, they motivate action. They're central to the social reproduction of environmental policy. So for critical social scientists, you know, I think that the story of blame is you know, a really complex narrative about colonial political economies, um, you know, the way that forests were exploited under the Spanish and the Americans, this massive institutionalized corruption under the Marcos regime that looted the nation's forests, um, you know, the systemic collusion between the military, private logging interests, state agencies for much of the 20th century. It's a rich tapestry. But for foresters and, and other state officials in the Philippines who control this official narrative of environmental change, from the colonial period till the present, the story is a little bit different, right? So while you know a lot of these the officials they can see that there might have been some inefficiencies in the scientific management of forests or, or some oversights in various ways, the real issue, the real cause of this deforestation has been the expansion of small-scale shifting agriculture. It's called Cainian Arrows in the Philippines, into these upland areas, into the forest, slowly eroding it over time. Their population is growing. They're, they're continuing to practice this kind of agriculture. So for them, this is a problem of population. It's a problem of inefficient agricultural production uh, and of hard-headed peasants who won't change the way that they do things. So in particular, you know, indigenous peoples have been recurrently identified as um, the most destructive of all kind in areas, right? Because they have, in the perception of, of, of these foresters, a cultural predisposition towards mobility. They just won't settle down. Um, you know, their agricultural practices are socially embedded. It's difficult to get them to change their minds. So this kind of sustained accusation, this kind of sustained blame, has unleashed wave after wave of interventions on Indigenous people who live in these forests to basically re-engineer whole communities, right? So where they live, what they eat, how they think about the environment, their healthcare practices, their daily routines, all in the name of achieving this kind of environmental sustainability. Um, so, you know, the effectiveness of these kind of interventions has, you know, varied considerably, but what's shocking is this level of central planning of people's lives, right? So if we want to understand the shape of Indigenous people's lives and their livelihoods, we need to understand how they've come to be identified and governed for centuries as environmental problems in places like Kuala. I, I want to come back to the question of blame or the issue of blame uh, in a minute, but um, I want to ask a little bit more about kind of climate and the understandings of climate change, because obviously there are many different understandings of the causes of environmental hazards and events, including climate change, and, and even using a phrase like Climate change, it assumes a certain set of relationships between the local and the regional and the global, you know, the idea of a global climate change that it's not shared by everybody. Uh, to get to the point, it's it's clear that a lot of context uh, climate change effects are incorporated into existing the existing cultures of a place, some of which you were just outlining for us. It's climate culture, which is a phrase used by the geographer Mike Hume. Can you tell us a little bit, uh, what was the climate culture on Palawan? And I guess, how have the impacts of climate change um, been experienced and understood? So I guess at a broader level in the Philippines, climate change is something that's really readily accepted as a reality by you know all people across the political spectrum. And I think that's a little bit different from somewhere like Australia or the United States, where conservative politicians um, 
know, they can they can peddle this kind of climate denialism. But you know, conservative politicians in the Philippines, they're they're generally pretty on board with this idea, right? And you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but probably primarily this is because their constituents are feeling the effects of, you know, and the violent consequences of environmental change and climate change in particular on a routine basis, right? The Philippines is a place that's exposed to a lot of really severe uh, climatic impacts form of extended droughts from El Nino events and things like that. So if they were to start denying this, I think that would not be well received by their constituency. Um, and so even, you know, people like Duterte, they draw on the language of climate change for their own purposes. It's just something that's really readily accepted. And so for the people that I worked with, the indigenous groups that I worked with as part of my research, climate change was also something that was readily articulated outside of any kind of cajoling by government or NGOs. So what I experienced uh, doing my research was a really consistent narrative, right? That the weather was becoming more unpredictable. So in the past, seasons arrived with certainty. There was a balance between rain, sunshine, but now the weather is really different. Um, and this is having a really significant impact on Sweden agriculture and people's household food security. So it's not a great situation. So on the face of it, this seems like a really wonderful accordance between these broader scientific explanations for climate change and local explanations, which, you know, which is great. But if we dig a bit deeper, if we ask a few more questions, these explanations diverge pretty dramatically. So I asked a lot of people, well, why is the weather changing? Why have things become different? And the most common narrative was the rise of incestuous relationships in this particular area. So people marrying or engaging in these intimate relationships with their very close kin. Um, so this was the cause of, of negative climatic conditions. Um, you know, this increase in forbidden relationships you know, resulted in this very complicated chain of spiritual causality that meant that the weather was getting out of whack. There were more extreme events, the weather was more unpredictable. And during my fieldwork, it was an interesting time because there were a few different cases of these, these incestuous relationships called sumbang that were under deliberation by local leaders in this area. So you could see how these ideas were kind of playing. And what people told me was that in the past, when people committed these kinds of sins, these, these forbidden acts, you could ameliorate the negative impacts of climate change by killing the incest offenders, um, you know, if they were particularly close, right? So between siblings, for example, because when this occurred, it threatened the very nature of the world, right? If, if this went unpunished, potentially the whole world could be destroyed. So this might involve beheading them and then treating the bodies in various ways to, to kind of ameliorate these negative climatic conditions. Um, if it was a less distant relationship, you might be able to ritually bleed the offenders and, and release the blood in, into the ocean. This was a way to kind of forestall these negative impacts. And so while I was there, there were a few different cases and they were, these were you know, relatively distant kinds of relationships between cousins. So they, they were bad, but they weren't you know, catastrophic people were talking about what to do in these situations and you know ultimately the the people involved they, they simply wouldn't submit to these kind of punishments um, and people were, were not really obeying their, their elders and leaders in ways they had before and so this was the cause of these these kinds of uh, 
you know, negative climatic conditions. And so what's distressing about these explanations isn't that it just doesn't align with scientific causality, but that it, lo it locates culpability for climate change with those who are most impacted by it. I'm really interested in this idea, not of blaming others, but of blaming yourself. And you argue in in the book that that this is this is challenging to people who are interested in the the problems confronting indigenous people the people as you said the people who are most at risk of the effects of climate change um, because it seems that people are saying well actually no I'm not a victim I'm the problem now, I see this coming through in a couple of ways in your book. It's not a simple story. In fact, none of your book is a simple story. It's the complexity that requires a, a peeling back of different things. But I'm interested in why people are, why you think people are, why you argue, in fact, people are asserting that they are culpable? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that this is a, a question that doesn't really have an answer, right? Um, and, and it's something that I, I find that people are really intrigued by. They, they want to know why these things are occurring in an objective kind of way. So one of the questions that a lot of people ask me is, well, is incest really increasing in this area? Are people really going through these kinds of transformations and that leads them to blame themselves. And, you know, I, I, I don't really kind of try to answer that question because I think there's something that we, we just can't know, right? We can't go back in time and measure all these things and, and, and determine whether this has actually been increasing. And so as unsatisfying as that is, part of what I've, I tried to do in the book is not provide a, a, an answer to this question, but think about how the confronting nature of these kinds of explanations can help us rethink some really significant parts of global climate change policy. So when we think about how Indigenous people are, are, are portrayed in the work of multilateral institutions or international NGOs or, you know, and what the impact of these representations might be. So that's kind of the opportunity I wanted to take when thinking about um, these kinds of narratives, which is, you know, I think really important, but as, as your question kind of points out, really unsatisfying, because that's something that we want to know here in a more objective kind of way. In your work, you've wrestled, you know, not just in your book, but elsewhere as well, with this, this particularly knotty problem of global environmental policy. Through the 2000s, you know, we saw a kind of reversal where previously Indigenous peoples' knowledge and practices, you know, uh, in many different contexts, uh, went from being completely marginalised and ignored, if not sometimes criminalised, to being acknowledged in policy documents and agreements as kind of um, important for conservation outcomes, for disaster resilience and so on, which sounded really great <laughs> on the face of it. <laughs> But as you've argued, um, it's also meant that policymakers and researchers, they look at Indigenous people often with a kind of the, the utilitarian glasses on. 
you know, looking for the use value. So tell us a bit about, more about this issue, I guess, and the, and the pitfalls of that kind of recognition as you see them. Well, I think in, in, in focusing on the kind of issues of blame that Monica talked about, we can help us think about the way that Indigenous people are positioned within this global climate change policy. And what I argue within the book is that if we think about the very unexpected narratives of climate change that Indigenous people might have throughout the world, it's possible to see that they're caught within a very thorny bind. And I, and I refer to this in the book as uh, the victim-savior complex. So it's a diffuse set of ideas uh, that I used to refer to the expectations that Indigenous people should be, on the one hand, these innocent victims of industrial capitalism who bear the brunt of anthropogenic climate change, but at the same time that they should be the saviors of this broken Western society, right? They can provide the knowledge that allows industrial capitalist societies to adapt to extreme weather, um, but also the environmental knowledge to mitigate some of uh, you know, the potential impacts of climate change. And so these ideas, they, they really resolutely underpin global policy economies, right? Global climate change policy, you know, as it's operated by these NGOs, these multilateral institutions like the United Nations, they simply couldn't operate with reference to a lot of ideas that surround this complex, right? They're not just analytical tools for functional, functionally diagnosing who's vulnerable, who's in need of resilience, you know, whose ideas can help us understand climate change. They morally compel the transfer of wealth from rich nations to poor nations, right? From wealthy NGOs to impoverished communities. Um, and it compels the transfer of respect, and authority. So, you know, as you say, on the face of it, this seems great, but their problem, I suppose, is that there are very few groups who can actually embody these ideas, right? It's quite rare. So, yeah, again, just to dig a little bit deeper into some of this, you talked about the difficulties of asking why do people blame themselves? I'm interested in what are the consequences of people blaming themselves. And I mean, not just on a global stage, but in the local social setting. I'll give one example that definitely comes out of the, the book. Yes, they blame themselves for, as you say, it is our failure to control our lust for a kin, if you like. So it is the, the growing incest. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. But there's a deeper thing. By pushing that, they are also saying, why can't we control this? There are forces beyond. So it actually can be read as a deeply political statement. So I'd like you to talk a little more about that aspect of your argument about incest? So part of what I try to do in the book is to kind of embed these local politics of blame within a much wider moral ecology of, of forest decline in, in Southeast Asia. So I think one strategy that might be used to kind of seal off these kinds of arguments to, to kind of put them aside is to say, well, this is just 
a purely local quirk, right? It only really matters for people's own lives in this very tiny corner of the world. And, and by kind of looking at how these, this blame for you know, increasing rates of incest and other kinds of cultural decline that people might talk about as being responsible for changes in the weather, what I found was that it was actually deeply embedded in a local politics that linked you know, people's lives in this particular place to these larger histories of forest governance in the Philippines and indeed in Southeast Asia, right? So people would make these arguments that, you know, people who'd become wealthier as a result of engaging with, you know, the Philippine government's projects had kind of forgotten their culture, or they, they weren't willing to enforce the rules in the way that they had done previously. So there was this local contestation or discussion around growing social inequality. And so blame for this rise in incest was interwoven with that. And, you know, there were these internal debates about, uh, you know, what culture and continuity should look like, but they're not separate from these efforts to outside efforts by the government to revise um, people's lives in this particular place. So it's not just about what's going on in this one area. It's, it's part of a much broader uh, political ecology of forests in Southeast Asia. There are an, a number of pages in the, the conclusion to your book where you get to some some really key issues in policy and research, namely that attention to, to keywords like vulnerability and resilience is often, often flattening and, and draws attention away from underlying inequalities that produce vulnerability in the first place or produce the, the need to be resilient. Now walk us through this argument a little. And I, so I think, to be fair, I think there has been a shift in the last couple of decades towards a definition of resilience that, or vulnerability that more closely aligns with how critical social scientists might imagine. So if you look at how Oxfam, for example, might understand or communicate vulnerability to a global public, I think that there has been some, some shift here to acknowledging these underlying structural kind of dimensions. But I think, you know, the operationalization of these ideas of, of vulnerability, for example, or the need to enhance resilience has really been focused on the need to improve the individual or the household or the community or whatever unit these, these projects might be focusing on. So the logic being that if we can equip people with the right tools, the right knowledge, they'll no longer be vulnerable. So that's a lot easier. It's a lot politically safer than addressing really vast structural inequality. So I think there is a critique to be made there that the representation of, of individuals or households or communities is deficient, opens them up to external interventions, and these interventions are quite comprehensive. Hmm. Yeah, you write, you write in the book, uh, in a passage that I underlined, what happens if Indigenous peoples do not or cannot meet the redemptive hopes or fit neatly into the, the victim slot to which into which they're cast. I guess it's a, it's a rhetorical question in the book, and uh, it could be a rhetorical question here. But I think it's a it's a kind of key one um, uh, in my own research and thinking about 
you know, the burden that this places upon people to be the bearer of mm. uh, of modernity's hopes. Well, I think what I one thing I've learned, uh, you know, from peer review and other places, is that people don't like rhetorical questions; they like definitive answers. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's a manifestation of that, you know, right here. So, I mean, like, well, what does happen if, if people don't need that? Well, I guess we can we can think about that in a, a range of different ways. Um, we can think about it in terms of, of the academic implications. Um, and I think that, you know, one response that we might have, and we can think about this in our own research, is that we might just ignore troubling accounts of climate change or other kinds of environmental change or whatever that doesn't really align or match with our, our understanding of the world. Right, and that's that's something that you know, we might have all definitely engaged in. We can excise it from the scholarly record, um, or you know, another option here that you know anthropologists do engage in is to reconfigure these really troubling accounts um, to be metaphors that actually critique global capitalism. Right, so that's another kind of way that we can render these really troubling accounts kind of uh, inert. Um, and you know that's that's these are definitely tactics and strategies that I've engaged in as well. But as I kind of mentioned before, I think this misses an opportunity because really confronting these kinds of accounts can help us think about the way that indigenous people are really framed within broader global policy. In terms of the policy implications of, of these kinds of expectations, I guess we can think about the history of community forestry and other forms of kind of nominally participatory or empowering forms of environmental governance. Um, the target indigenous people in the Philippines and also elsewhere. So historically, you know, indigenous people whose livelihoods are expressed, uh, you know, in ways that contradict dominant environmental uh, beliefs or, or wisdoms, you know, what happens to them is that they might be ignored when these projects are unfolding. Um, and in so doing, they're, they're you know, denied the benefits that these projects might afford to people, right? the material and symbolic benefits. Um, they can you know, willingly reshape their practices to be more appealing, um, and, or it can open people up to, to intervention, to kind of outside uh, you know, governments to reform their practices and beliefs. So this isn't a normative assessment. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad that people might engage in these practices or not. But this is just what the, the kind of body of social science evidence would, would probably suggest. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the actual rejection of these roles. There's a movement in much of the Indigenous communities around the world to actually, that, that's referred to as, you know, um, refusing recognition. So refusing to take on the role of victim or refusing to take on the responsibility to save others. Is this a pointless exercise in the long run? Is this counterproductive? I mean, I think, you know, there's a difficult thing for, for me as a, you know, a white Australian man to kind of comment on the validity of that kind of strategy. Um, but I think it's definitely understandable. I think there's, you know, an exhaustion from, from many communities that they, they feel the need to kind of meet these expectations. And, 
you know, meeting these expectations is it's not an easy thing to do, right? We've got to have a very powerful communicative strategy, you know, this kind of rhetorical style and, and a connectedness to international networks to frame your, yourself and your community in this particular way. And that's, uh, those are tools and these are resources that are really unevenly distributed, right? So some indigenous groups are able to tap in to these global images, you know, these, these expectations in a really successful way, and they can derive the benefits that might, that might come from that kind of recognition. Um, and then there are communities that, that you know, they, they don't have those opportunities. They're not well-connected in the same way. And, you know, that's definitely true for a lot of indigenous communities. On, on Palau, they, don't, they don't have that kind of network and those kinds of opportunities to do that. I, I have a, a, a question I want to ask, and it's actually kind of relevant. It's relevant to both of your research um, because as a, as a reader of both uh, your work, Monica, and yours, Will, um, I see you both as environmental anthropologists who, you know, have, have troubled some of the, maybe some of the, the, the ideas that we have uh, that uh, if we pay attention to the relationships between humans and non-humans, we find flourishing or we find uh, mutual uh, reciprocity. That's not always the case uh, when we engage ethnographically in the actual places where people and non-people meet. Uh, you recently wrote an article, uh, Will, in, in the journal Ethnos, talking about the, the Palawan bearded pig, which uh, is the, I, so I learnt, the largest pig in the Philippines, which you know, I suspect that's quite a large pig. Um, and you focus on these relationships between people and pigs uh, to kind of highlight how um, people's relationships with these, these, these kind of crucial uh, non-human uh, companions are not simply about reciprocity and respect, but also about fear, uh, violence, and not to put too fine a point on it, uh, death. I guess uh, Will first, but Monica, feel free to chime in. Tell me about, uh, I guess, your interest in kind of writing that story and exploring those kinds of, I guess, darker uh, relationships with our non-human companions. Well, I think we live in this this moment where there's a collective gaze towards Indigenous people's relationship with the environment. You know, there's models for repairing devastation from industrial capitalism, and that exists you know, definitely in the realm of climate change policy. Um, but the models that we look to, I guess, more broadly as you know, critical scholars or informed publics, um, at this particular moment, they really focus on the positive affective relationships, right? They focus on close physical and social proximity to the non-human world, right? So the cure for our ills is this intimate care, you know, the making of kin, loving the environment. Um, and, you know, from what I've observed, you know, many Palawan people's relationships with the forest, they don't really map very well over that effect of ecology. The forest is full of malevolent spirits. It's full of practical danger. It's, you know, slippery and it's dark and it's full of things that want to bite you. I've been bitten by a lot of stuff uh, in those places. It's not necessarily a place of intimate care all the time. And when it is, there's always this element of risk and danger to it. Um, and so the relationship between, you know, wild pigs people is a really good example. They're really spiritually significant for a lot of Palawan people. They're stewarded by this powerful deity. They're a kind of person or, or, or with a, you know, a spiritual power to them, but they're locked in, in various kinds of conflict with humans. 
pigs, right? So in Southern Poland, pigs, they raid people's swimming fields. They, they eat all their root crops. The hunters lace these forests with, you know, snares and, and explosive pig bombs that make it very difficult to move around the forest in a free and easy way. And if you listen to the accounts that people tell you of pig hunting, these are like really desperate and bloody encounters that people go through. And so for me, the provocation that arises from all of this is that, well, is there a model of environmental repair that takes fear as a central emotion rather than love? So I think that, you know, love is kind of overrated in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> <laughs> the world is full of places that we love to death. And so one interesting example for me is comparing Yosemite National Park, you know, in the States, which is, you know, a beloved place in, in, in the country and it's something that's just, it suffers from this kind of people wanting to be too close to it. You know, they go there, they trample it, the sheer weight of human bodies, the, 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 the waste that people empty into these areas. It's being loved to death. And then we, we contrast that to somewhere like Chernobyl, which is the site of existential dread for humans, but it's a site of this you know, non-human flourishing, right? So places that, you know, human beings don't necessarily want to go or don't want to love, you know, there's an alternative model there, potentially. Oh, it's an interesting idea. I guess the one thing that I would add to that is this, this sense that we have to love everything that's out there. I mean, we don't love all people. We are friends with some and enemies with others. We're, we're scared of, there are certainly people I'm scared of. Um, and for me, that's much more what I see with the people I've worked with in New Guinea, a much more nuanced negotiation of relationships with different parts of the forest and beings in the forest rather than the the kind of thing that comes across with you know, the, the back to nature programs that are being shown on the ABC at the moment, where it, we are still reproducing this sense of it's beautiful, we love it, rather than seeing that it's multiple. And I think it's that multiplicity that interests me. Do we need to go to these places to, to save them? I guess is the question for, that this might bring up. Or can we have a a distance relationship with the non-human world in a way that can produce these positive environmental outcomes. Yeah, I guess I've uh, I've encountered um, an argument around this put in these terms, which is that that environments emerge from uh, relations between lots of different kinds of uh, things, including humans, but that there are relations of non-relation that we need to. Uh, pay attention to and think about. I, I like this idea. This, I guess, this. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I find appealing this, 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 the, the verbs you're using, will around kind of smothering. But yeah, we can, we can. You know, one of the things associated with love is is too much connection, too much smothering nature. I'm going to take that as a as a title for an article. I think and steal that. <laughs> Uh, but I mean that that is also interesting because um, again there are places thinking about the people I work with again um, that people do not 
go, that you stay away mm. from, and that these are, in fact, enormously potent places crucial for the reproduction of the world as a whole, but you don't go there. And there are some resonances of that with the ideas of reserves as places that spill over, that by staying away, by not touching them, we reproduce the entire world. So. I, yeah, I think that there's definitely residences of that in Palau. I mean, there, there are particular areas that you don't go to, they're inhabited by you know, these malevolent spirits. And, and you know, in the past, this was kind of pointed to as an example of indigenous peoples, um, you know, innate conservationist um, tendencies. But, you know, I think we, we kind of live in a moment where this is a very, it's not fashionable to draw on those kinds of examples as a model of environmental repair. Um, and I think it's something that's difficult, um, and I think I'm here, you know, the Australian public and, and other publics in, in the Western world, to have a place that you can't go is, it's not appealing. It's not, it's not an easy thing to establish, right? So you can think here in Victoria, the closure of various um, rock climbing sites, um, you know, because they have this Aboriginal significance to them and the uproar surrounding that from a lot of conservative, uh, you know, politicians, but also, you know, the, the nature-loving public. The idea that there are places where we can't go and enjoy is really unpalatable. So I guess there's, there's a, a question of political viability for uh, a model of conservation, of no-touch conservation in that way, that only some people are allowed to go there, but not all Mm, which seems really in tension with, I guess, yeah, this band of, uh, what do you call it, uh, kind of conservation through empathy um, that we've seen from uh, environmentalist uh, groups in the last kind of couple of decades, that one has to go somewhere to to truly connect to it. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I'm always struck by, I used to teach uh, you know, ideas of citizenship to undergraduate students a while ago and one of the arguments that a lot of these political scientists make is that nationalism will always win because people can make an emotional connection to their homeland right people will fight and die you know to, to save their country um, but you know people won't fight and die for the inner service of cosmopolitanism they won't fight for a universal humanity and i always think about this in terms of environmental protection so people will fight for these places where they can go and have these intense emotional connections if it's somewhere that they can go and have this embodied experience but will they fight for something that they can never go and never see and never touch and never experience that that uh, intimate kind of way so maybe it's just a, a kind of environmental protection that people will never take up and, and fight for in a way that they might for others except of course that a place that lives so intensely in the mind because it's a site of power, of fear that you can never... I don't see why that that can't be just as powerful. Well, it seems like you're on board with my fear-based uh, conservation strategy <laughs> then. Actually, <laughs> um, which does actually... Bring me to, to one more question, okay. Um, more recently, I know you've been looking at the work of environmental and land defenders 
and their treatment. Okay. So what are environmental and land defenders? What do they do? And, and, and how are they being received or, or treated by the, by the Philippine state? So it's an interesting category of, of people, uh, environmental defenders, because as far as I know, it's not really a category that people self-identify with or something that's ascribed to them by various you know, media outlets and international NGOs. Um, and in the Philippines, the people who, are, who tend to be kind of picked out as environmental defenders, it's, it's a really wide assemblage of individuals. So it might be indigenous people fighting for rights to customary land. It could be peasant farmers resisting appropriation of their land by large-scale agribusiness. Uh, it could be fisher folk, you know, protesting for their right to access, um, you know, particular fisheries. Um, and, and it's a, a category of person that has been treated really badly in the Philippines, as, as in many other countries, but the Philippines often tops those lists of most environmental and land defenders killed um, each year. Uh, and so this has been a, a situation that you know, has historically been um, grounded in some of the long-standing counterinsurgency efforts in the Philippines, right? So starting in the 1970s, uh, you know, the Philippines was beset by you know, two different insurgencies, one by you know, the New People's Army and, and the other by uh, Islamic separatists in the south of the island. And so this was a, a really fortuitous event for uh, a lot of local politicians because it provides this kind of cover for assassinating people who might be standing in your way. Um, so anyone who might be killed, you know, who is opposing you know, the development of a, of a dam or the expansion of a plantation, this can be justified on the basis, the very slippery but perhaps plausible justification that they were engaging in some insurgent activities, right? Um, and this is a situation that's, that's it's gone on for decades now, starting in the 1970s up until the present. Um, you know, kind of an ebbs and flows, and you know, is something that has recently spiked again under the Duterte administration. There's been this rhetoric emanating from Duterte that really dehumanizes uh, a lot of these environmental defenders, particularly indigenous people. So a lot of his his kind of outward discussions of, of indigenous people links them to this insurgency, right? So they're the tools of these communist insurgents that are closely aligned with them. And when the military does attack them, it provides this kind of justification for these kinds of activities. So yeah, it's not an ideal situation um, by any means. Uh, given, you know, the, the kind of uh, ambiguity of this, I guess, category, how does one go about trying to, I guess, study, uh, study a you know, study, a, 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 I guess, a group of people who don't necessarily self-identify in these terms, but you know, are unified, um, it seems, by a political project, but also by certain kinds of forms of state oppression. So, I mean, uh, the starting point for for some of this work um, that I've been doing with, with others has been the work of uh, environmental NGOs like Global Witness that 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 they do this labor of identifying um, from kind of a media accounts who fits within this particular category. Um, and so you can, they, they look through news reports and rely on reports from local NGOs and they craft it into this kind of narrative around um, 
you know, who is or who isn't an environmental defender. And it's indeed a slippery category. There are people who could have been included in these towers that aren't necessarily included. Um, and there are people who are included in it who, you know, you know, might not necessarily be considered environmental land defenders by their communities. They might be fighting for ancestral rights to livelihood or to reside in a particular place. So it's a very slippery category that, that's arisen over the last couple of decades. I'm interested in the examples that you gave for people in this category. And so they're Indigenous people protecting their land, fishermen fighting for access to waters, um, people resisting the loss of land. These are all people who are, thinking back to the discussion we just had, all people who have a deep connection to particular places. And on your argument of people will die for the nation, nationalism will always win, this is inevitably going to be seen as a political project that challenges some overarching political identifications. So I'm not particularly surprised that the Philippine government and Duterte, etc., are constructing them as insurgents. Because yeah, I think, they're threatening the identity of this larger nation. I think it's interesting because they these people might view uh, you know, their, these particular struggles as intensely localized, but they become knitted into these much larger um, struggles against different kinds of state oppression. I mean, it's it's a different example, but it makes me think of the way in which the you know currently the Australian government discursively categorizes people who are opposed to new fossil fuel extraction as, as certain kinds of insurgent or involved in, uh, in green lawfare or these kinds of things as a kind of convenient category for, for a political project of, of, of um, extraction. Yeah, and I think the question is, well, what does that discourse do in Australia? It might be different from the Philippines. So in the Philippines, you know, rendering Indigenous people as this potential insurgent and in many ways dehumanizes them. Uh, you know, this is the, coming from Duterte himself. It provides this kind of maybe acceptance isn't the right word, but kind of numbness to people to the atrocities that are inflicted on people. Um, you know, on a routine kind of basis. So when the president is saying that you know these people are insurgents, they're they're doing all of these terrible things. It provides um, you know, a kind of cover or a justification, even when one might not necessarily exist, to, to in, tolerate these kinds of activities, because they happen all the time, right? Um, but very little is done about it. To recall our earlier conversation, it's a different kind of environmentalism of fear. Yeah, definitely. One which I uh, do not promote, by the way. <laughs> there's good, I guess there's good fear and there's bad fear. This is... Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to come up with a unifying theme yeah. for your uh, for your fear-based book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for listening to this chat between Tim Neal and our guests, Will Smith and Monica Minigal. This episode of Conversations in Anthropology was recorded by Tim Neal on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and edited by Maithili Meher and Matt Barlow with support from David Giles and me, Cameo Daly. Conversations in Anthropology is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society, the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. Don't forget to check out our new website, head to anthroconvo.com. And until next time, we hope you all stay well and enjoy reflecting on life, the universe and anthropology.